Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Thursday morning to you. Mike McNamara for a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio right here on your home for it. The All Warrior Radio Network. The Mensa Brothers are going to join me here in a few minutes. Welcome on a Thursday though to the House of All Marine Radio. Yeah, we're going to discuss uh, a little fight going on in the Marine Corps Gazette between Bill Lind and the Van Riper brothers, lieutenant general and colonel types. So pretty interesting. And again, reminds me of um, days gone by in the Marine Corps when that happened with greater frequency. And so uh, so we'll talk about that. But uh, we'll take a look at the news first. And some stories that caught my eye. Then we'll do a quick check of DOD headlines. And then the Mensa Brothers will join us. So, yeah, on a uh, on this Monday, uh, good morning to you. And uh, without further ado, this might be the fastest I've ever played the National, <laughs> the national Anthem in my life. But, uh, yeah, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, Official, good morning to you.
and this dedicated to Chris Woodbridge and the people at the Marine Corps Gazette who um, who always stand by to be a forum of discussion relative to things and ideas um, in the Marine Corps. Um, but it's really important that the culture and especially the senior leadership encourage that discourse, right, in all forms. And not everybody does that. And so this is dedicated to Woody and the people at the Gazette, right, for keeping that alive and uh, in the hopes that uh, vigorous discourse, right, um, never ever dies in the Marine Corps because it is truly essential in a business where you go play, you bet your life. Betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather here. And again, it's a little bit earlier. An hour earlier than I normally do this. So, sunny in 57 in Quantico. It is down the coast at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. It is 
Sunny at 62, 29 palms. Dark clear in 62. Going to be warm here on the West Coast today. It's supposed to be 87 degrees, I think, the high today. I'll get to that in a minute. Camp Pendleton, clear, dark, and 64. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark, cloudy, and 70. Okinawa, clear, dark, and 70. In the Philippines in Manila, dark, cloudy, and 81. And in Darwin on the northern coast of Australia, it is... Dark Cloudy in 84. The home of Almarine Radio, clear in 56. Looking for a high today of 86 degrees. 78 tomorrow, 68 on Saturday, 69 on Sunday, 67 on Monday. That is a uh, that is a look at your weather. Let me get to a few news stories that I noticed this morning. Number one is from Yahoo News. At least that's where, that's where I saw it. Written by a guy named Jason Beardsley. Um, leaders will give the Navy anything but more ships. The Navy has seen better days. In the 1980s, it reached nearly 600 ships and became an ever-present reminder of U.S. strength around the world. Today, we are just short of 300 vessels, a ceiling we have been unable to crack in 15 years. Under President Joe Biden's direction, the fleet will shrink even further. Over the last six months, everyone in charge of the Navy has said they support the goal of building a fleet of up to 355 ships. But that support was nowhere to be seen in the Biden budget, which called for fewer ships. Our Navy's leaders tell us, Amer- tell us that America is still the strongest force at sea, but the evidence shows were even weaker than implied by our total force, our total fleet size. The Navy has been involved in a string of disasters and blunders that raised the real questions about its ability to maintain basic training and operational standards, let alone project power across the globe. The crashes of the McCain and the Fitzgerald killed 17 sailors. Arson aboard the Bonhomme Richard in 2020 revealed a complete lack of readiness up and down the chain of command and a $1.2 billion ship was destroyed. A submarine that took damage in the Pacific has to return all the way home for repairs since we long ago closed down repair facilities in Guam. There is, one, there is more than one major bribery scandal in the papers involving the Navy. Several Navy jets have crashed in Texas this year, year along with a helicopter near San Diego that killed five. On top of all that, a government report says Navy sailors are tired all the time. The Navy says its current problems can be overcome in two ways, by harnessing technology and through greater cooperation with our allies. But there are real reasons for doubt. In October, Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, pushed aside worries of a shrinking fleet by rattling off a list of high-tech catchphrases that he hoped can keep the U.S. level with China. Artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, unmanned platforms, directed energy, hypersonic weapons, distributed power. These are the frontiers that will define your advantage against the People's Republic of China, and it's crucial that we field them expeditiously, he said. Less than a week later, one of the Pentagon's top cybersecurity officials blew a hole in that plan by resigning over the Pentagon's failure to make AI and cybersecurity top priorities. 
on these issues, he said, America has no competing fighting chance against China in 10 to 15 years. Well, there's always cooperation with allies, right? Del Toro and others have been making the rounds overseas to talk up a series of collaboration catchphrases that will somehow protect us. Quote, globally, we will strengthen our relationship with like-minded maritime democracies, deepening interoperability in order to enable mutual action to address shared challenges. Chief of Naval Operations Mike Gilday told Indian Navy officials that cooperation would deter China. Quote, Cooperation, when applied with naval power, promotes freedom and peace and prevents coercion, intimidation, and aggression, he said on the Bay of Bengal. No one is opposed to cooperation with allies, but when Taiwan faces a physical threat from China, will the, associ- will the assorted navies in the Indo-Pacific stand with us as we limp on scene with our depleted force, led by a command that seems more interested in diversity and inclusion than fighting prowess? Or will China get whatever it wants? Wow. I don't even... (laughs) Jason Beersley, a Green Beret and Navy veteran, represents veterans, active duty sailors, and their families as executive director of the Association of the United States Navy. Wow. Let me... I'll just read the last part of this because this is not what I expected it to be. The botched withdrawal from Afghanistan showed us the limits of placing faith in allies. We, are to- we were told for years that countries, U.S. trained security forces were stronger than the Taliban, and it folded in days. Who knows what we really know about the will of our Asian partners to fight China? A retired Navy sailor reminded me recently, quote, we own the Pacific in World War II. If we are to control our destiny there again amid China's rise, we need more than kind words from allies. We need more than helpful technologies that either don't exist or are far from being implemented by the Pentagon that they might as well not exist. America America succeeds when it leads. America needs to get back in the business of putting ships in the water. And if our Navy leaders don't stop making excuses for a smaller fleet and don't start fighting for a larger one, we will have already lost. Wow. That's pretty impressive, right? Yahoo News. Jason Beardsley. Nice. Somebody speaking the truth from Al Jazeera this morning. Khalizad urges U.S. engage with the Taliban to avert an Afghanistan collapse. Wait a minute. So this is Zalmay Khalizad, the guy who negotiated this fucking deal in Afghanistan. Now he's saying that we have to support the Taliban to save Afghanistan. Wait a minute. They won. They own the fucker. It's them that has to change to create policies maybe that would entice the nations around the world to support Afghanistan. Like, am I losing my fucking mind? Former U.S. envoy says Biden should pursue normalcy, defends peace deal he negotiated, blames Ghani for his failures. Right? Right? 
Allowing the new Taliban government in Kabul to fall apart would create a huge humanitarian crisis. We'll let the UN deal with it. Right? We just, we just saw the Taliban won. We saw the parade. Now turn to building the nation. Oh, it's not what they do, so we're supposed to fucking help? I, I, I have to tell you, I, for the life of me, man, I, I do not. This guy is a shithead. I, you know, again, he negotiated a deal that excluded the government of Afghanistan. And we all thought that was a good idea. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, here's another article. It's called Let's see. From the New York Post. Right? U.S. cigarette sales increased for the first time in 20 years. That according to the Federal Trade Commission. The country's largest cigarette manufacturer sold 203.7 billion cigarettes last year as the country grappled with stressors from the pandemic, up from 202.9 billion in 2019. Tobacco companies also boosted advertising spending. Quote, given the concerning trends highlighted in this report, including the first increase in cigarette sales in two decades, the commission will continue to expand its approach in reporting shifts in the tobacco industry. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, one more story. The real reason the Pentagon is sounding the alarm over China, over China's hypersonic missiles. Now, this is kind of interesting. Ch Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the top-ranking U.S. military officer, warned on Wednesday about a scary-sounding new hypersonic missile. Quote, I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that, he said in an interview referencing the famous Soviet satellite. Supposedly, <clears throat> these weapons are faster, more accurate, and harder to detect than any previous nuclear weapon. Milley is widely, wildly exaggerating. As Cameron Tracy from the Union of Concerned Scientists explains in detail, a hypersonic missile is essentially little different from an intercontinental ballistic missile. They have been around for decades. They're not much faster or stealthier or immune to detection. And while a hypersonic missile could be nearly impossible to shoot down, that is already true of ICBMs, which themselves can travel at 20 times the speed of sound. Tests of anti-ballistic missile technology under ideal conditions have worked sometimes and failed sometimes. But a realistic mass, mass attack of multiple warhead missiles would be impossible to defend against. But even if the most Elon Musk-esque hype about hypersonic missiles were correct, it would change nothing whatsoever about the logic of nuclear competition. 
even if China actually could destroy every single American city and nuclear installation in one swift strike with 100% certainty, they would still face the existential threat of retaliation from nuclear submarines, not to mention nuclear winter, plus the fact that the Chinese economy would collapse instantly without America buying its exports. The logic of mutually assured destruction, which kept the USSR and America out of war for 40 years, still holds. So now we get to the rest of the story. The real reason Millie is whipping up panic can be found later in the interview. Quote, we're going to have to adjust our military going forward, he said. That is code for spending trillions and trillions of dollars on our own fancy hyperweapons that also serve no strategic purpose and in all probability won't even work. With the decline in worries about terrorism, the military-industrial complex needs a new boogeyman to justify the preposterously bloated and wasteful Pentagon budget. A new Cold War with China would fit that bill. So there is a danger of hypersonic missiles that they will be used to whoop up fear in both China and the U.S. and lead those countries to waste ludicrous sums on pointless murder gizmos that would be better spent helping their own citizenry. So that's kind of interesting, right? All right. Um, top stories. Quickly. Uh, from Stars and Stripes. Taiwan's president. Confident of U.S. defense confirms American troop presence. I like her. Taiwan's president confirmed the presence of a small contingent of U.S. troops on the island in an interview aired today by CNN that said that, quote, threat from China is increasing every day. President Tsai Ing-wen told the broadcasters she's confident the United States would come to the defense to would come to Taiwan's defense if China tried to invade. Quote, I do have faith given the long-term relationship that we have with the United States and also the support of the people of the United States as well as Congress, she said. The administration has been very helpful. <laughs> oh, let's see how the White House two steps around that one. About two dozen members of U.S. special operations and support troops are training small units of Taiwan's ground forces, and Marines are working with local maritime forces on small boat training, the official said, according to the newspaper. The U.S. forces have been operating on Taiwan for at least a year. There is also a small detachment of Marines deployed for security at the American Institute of Taiwan, the de facto U.S. embassy there. Quote, even if the numbers increase, I doubt they will by very much. And this is Ian Chong, an associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore. The point of U.S. troops being in Taiwan is to assist with training rather than to get involved in any actual operations or preparing for operations. Taiwanese troops have also trained in the United States, Chong said. Interesting little story there in Stars and Stripes. Top story in the Wall Street Journal today is, you know, I still, I'm caught, 
Kalzai, we have to help the Taliban now. Like, you won. Good luck. We're gone. Top headline in the Wall Street Journal. Biden releases framework on social spending climate package. The Democrats trying to cobble together some form of deal that that lets Joe Manchin call some shots and doesn't lose progressives. We'll see if they can do it. There's also an interesting, an exclusive Wall Street Journal story that says intelligence agencies failed to predict the rapid fall of Kabul. I'll read the first paragraph in there. It's pretty interesting. Um, Leading U.S. intelligence agencies failed to predict the rapid Taliban takeover of Afghanistan prior to the final withdrawal of American troops and instead offered scattershot assessments of the staying power of the Afghan military and the government. A review of wide-ranging summaries of classified material by the Wall Street Journal shows. Nearly two dozen intelligence assessments from four different agencies have been previously reported. The assessments charted Taliban advances from the spring of 2020 through this past July, forecasting that the group would continue to gain ground and that the U.S.-backed government in Kabul was unlikely to survive absent U.S. support. The analyses, however, differ over how long the Afghan government and military could hold on. The summary show with none forecasting the group's lightning sweep into the capital by August 15th while U.S. forces remained on the ground. So, yeah, pretty little interesting article in the Wall Street Journal that talks about our ability to collect intelligence. And here's the question about that. So Afghan, Afghanistan's going to roll, right? And the deals are already being cut. That wasn't an accident. And there wasn't a whole lot of major fighting. And we talked about that. You know, the Mensa brothers and I, you know, we talked about that. And that was the question. Would there be ma- any major fighting? And if there's not, what did that mean? Well, that meant that, that meant that the deals were already cut. And that is the way of Afghanistan, to make a deal. And I'm not going to die for this thing that I don't even believe in. And all of our intelligence agencies don't see that coming. The fix is in. Everybody's in on it, but they don't see it. So my, I guess my point is, that's not marginally fucked up, right? That is substantially fucked up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> sorry, Sorry about that. Um, let's see. So we did the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Top story in the New York Times is Biden announces $1.85 trillion framework for climate and safety. We'll see if it works. Um, top story in, in, in USNI News is, stand by, Navy not sure what USS Connecticut struck in the South China Sea. Beijing accuses the U.S. of a cover-up.
What? How could so? Oh, the other big story, you probably saw it yesterday. Strike Group Commander, the USS Gerald R. Ford is set for its first deployment. The Gerald R. Ford, right, plagued with problems, finally going to deploy. So, yeah. The Navy doesn't know what it struck. How does it not know what it struck? Right? Yeah, film at 11. Um, top story in Marine Corps Times is... Tattoos. That's right. Tattoos. When in doubt, go to tattoos. It's a winner. Uh, top five stories in Early Bird quickly, and then the Mensa Brothers will join me. The F-35 is one step closer to carrying nuclear bombs. What's next? That's that in Air Force Times. Next story. She was just doing her job. Homeless vet loses service dog during arrest for panhandling. Next story. VA has a broken culture regarding patient safety, according to a watchdog. Next story. Fort Hood crisis didn't hurt the Army's Hispanic recruiting, according to data. Next story. General Milley calls Chinese weapons test very concerning. Uh, overseas operational headlines. Taiwan confirms U.S. military presence. We talked about that. Number t- Next one. Ergodan to meet Biden discuss canceled F-35 shipment. Yeah, like you want to do business with Soviets? Sorry. Next story is the Kalazad story. That story kills me. Hey, get the U.N. involved. That's what their job is. Right? The United Nations. But it's not America. We left, man. You won. We lost. Here you go. Good luck. Yeah, so so maybe what you negotiated wasn't in the best interest of Afghanistan there, Kalazad. Just clown shit. U.S. Embassy in Moscow dwindling to a caretaker presence, according to U.S. officials. Uh, let's see. The Sri Lankan Navy took delivery of the former U.S. Coast Guard cutter, Douglas Monroe. And here's a story that you thought you would never read. This is in Foreign Policy. Muqtada al-Sadr is the United States' best hope. The Shiite cleric was once Washington's most bitter enemy and now offers the best chance of securing U.S. interests. Things you never, ever thought you would read. In their national election earlier this month, Iraqis took the unprecedented step of rejecting an Iran-backed coalition of armed Shia militias while showing a clear preference for Muqtada al-Sadr, a Shiite cleric who promotes a nationalistic agenda. Now, let me tell you, um, I think... A lot of Iraqis would have told you that they needed their own charismatic Iraqi leader that would rise above the factional interest. It's surprising that Sadr might be that guy. The success of a purportedly secular Shiite grouping over a sectarian and armed one is telling in Iraq. Yeah, think about that. 
the PMUs began their anti-Islamic state force, but are since accused of becoming local gangsters who run extortion rackets and carry out extrajudicial killings. Sadr, by contrast, consolidated support, PMU is supported by Iran. Sadr, by contrast, consolidated support on the backs of promises to usher in political reforms that weaken sectarian elites build a secular society, and end Iranian interference while banishing U.S. troops from the country. His anti-U.S. credentials are not in doubt. Sadr earned notoriety in the years after the U.S. invasion for unleashing sectarian militias against, under his control against U.S. troops. Yet it's the U.S. government that perhaps should be most pleased by Sadr's new status as a national leader. Many questions remain about, how much, about much of Sadr's agenda, but what seems indisputable is Sadr has emerged as Iraq's only political leader with enough popularity to push through the sort of changes the country needs, including dismantling sectarian quotas for political offices and containing Iran-backed militias. So, interesting article in foreign pol- at foreignpolicy.com. Yeah, things you thought you would never read. All right, so without further ado... The Mensa Brothers join me here on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. Stand by. Uh, it is Thursday, so that means it's time to uh, do the Mensa Brothers. So they join me here from McAllen, Texas, Tim Lynch. Tim, how you doing? Doing just fine today, Mac. How about you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Jeff Kenny joins me from Southern California. Jeff, how are you? Good. Thank you, Mac. And then uh, Will Cosentini joins me, uh, the swimmer of the group, joins me from Kansas City, greater Kansas City. I can never remember if it's, I think it's Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. Yes? It is. There you go. Yeah. There you go. It's, uh, winter is coming in the Midwest. Yeah, it skipped Southern California. It's 74 degrees today. It'll be 78 tomorrow. So, uh so yeah, it's uh, it's kind of passed us by. Northern California got clipped a little bit, but uh, that's their problem. As long as they keep sending water, we have no problem with that. Um, <laughs> the uh, we're gonna talk about today a little uh, a little uh, kerfuffle that has blossomed in the pages of the Marine Corps Gazette and elsewhere. And um, these things, when we when we were all when we met and we're hanging out, this was not anything right this happened because the marine corps was in the throes of the discussion about maneuver warfare and you were either labeled a maneuverist or an attritionist was there a name for anybody who wasn't either not that i remember remember sailor sailor (laughs) the um maybe maybe um and so but but i think we had great examples well, especially at the basic school in Quantico at the time, um, of people that, that would would argue in front of us, and and it'd be like watching a tennis match, right? Um, I remember you, Colonel you, Hackworth. You, Colonel Hackworth showed up, and you know, and you know, he had written his book about face, and and uh, he was going around speaking, and uh, so you had all these loud dissenting voices that were. Um, 
that had great experiences that were not afraid to get it on in public. And I thought they were great examples of uh, the intellectual um, path that, that ought to be part of the profession of arms. And, and we... Well, you're right, Mac. You're right, it caught on fast because... When Will was a first lieutenant and he was the XO of our company, he sent Hackworth a letter giving him shit for smoking dope in Vietnam with his guys. Remember that, Will? Actually, it's the only letter I've ever sent to an author. You know, I've written a bunch. <laughs> and he, he wrote sent. back. He goes, hey, I understand how you feel. And, you know, he was good about it, you know? Yeah, he and I became uh, correspondents. In fact, I'm the one that invited him to the basic school. No <laughs> shit. Oh yeah, because yeah, me and Timmy, me and Timmy haunted him, got uh-huh. to the hotel room, and then got his ass down to Quantico, and so yeah, we had to get him out of the airport past all the army dudes that were waiting to see him. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My watch went off in the middle of that thing, and um, the alarm on my watch, and I was sitting there with my uh, my left wrist right next to my left ear. And I didn't realize how much of my hearing I'd lost, but so my, my watch is beeping, beep, 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 the alarm's going off, and everybody's looking around like, whose watch is that? And I'm just sitting there listening to Colonel Hackworth, beep, 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 beep. and I don't know, my watch is going off, and finally somebody like shoves me like, dude, your watch is going off. I'm like, it is? And they're like, yeah, stop it. I'm like, sorry, man. <laughs> That's You know, a, com- a complete digression on Hackworth. Um, I remember when he came and we, he, we went over to IOC and uh, we were in the bullpen there and he was just talking to the staff. And I would say he's the only high-ranking officer uh, that I'd ever dealt with up to that time who listened more than he talked. And, uh, you know, he'd been out of, out of the business yep. for 20 years at that point. Um, living, in, but, living in Australia, right? Living in Australia, a restaurateur, he eventually moved back. He lived in uh, Whitefish, Montana. and uh, But he, I still have all the letters he wrote me. I could probably got 25 of them. Wow. Um, That's cool. You, yeah. You know, you know there's a, a guy um, named Matt, I don't think he wants his last name out, who runs the website Feral Jundi. It's a contractor thing. And he cannot believe that we, because he listens to us, have actually not only that we met and listened and talked to all these different people, particularly particularly John Boyd and Lynn together. Uh, I mean, when he goes, "What you you met him? Oh yeah, we no we've we've talked to him. He, he, they, there are people who freak out about that because Boyd has become such a legend. Yeah, I mean, that, and also Von Creveld and fucking yeah, that's right. And, you know, yeah, I threw that name out of too. Didn't, didn't resonate. I don't though. mean weird, but I mean you know he was very smart. Yeah. Had a nice kid. I never forgive Uncreveled. You will be irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about uniformed well, military in the future. He was irrelevant. I'm sorry to get us off track, guys. But no, we, you know, I, I, I lucky, lucky. We met so many relevant people. We were just very fortunate. I um, I was leaving. I was going to the advanced armor course that summer. And so I'd done all my turnover, and so I was von Krevel's escort, escort at Quantico, and then I drove him down to Camp Lejeune and then spent two days with him as he spoke there and then brought him back to, to Quantico. 
And so, um, so, you know, we're in, we're in my car for, I don't know what, six hours driving down there. And, uh, and so at one point, you know, he's talking about growing up in Europe. And I said, I said, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, no. I said, at some point during the Holocaust, I said, the Jewish men of Europe had to know that whatever was going on was, was detrimental to their families. Why didn't they fight? And I, and I, and after I asked the question, I said, and, and I don't mean to, I'm, I'm not as accusatory as that statement is. I just don't understand it. And, you know, your family was in, I want to say the Netherlands, uh, or, yeah. De- or, De- or Denmark. And I, I the, the name is a, is a Netherlands name, Van. Right. Was, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. And he, he got very quiet and he looked at me and he said, it is the eternal shame of my father's generation. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, he said, you know, often people accuse Israel of acting with a heavy hand. And he said, um, when you lose six million people, he said, I don't know if anybody can forgive you for that, but hopefully you can understand that because if anybody has a bias for action, it is we who can never lose. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and I said, I hope my question doesn't bend. He said, no. He said, most people are afraid to ask. I said, well, I was a little uncomfortable because this is, this car is not that big and we still have a few, we still have a few hours to go, but just a, a fascinating guy. And then you get to spend time like that, you know, um, with him and talking about different things and, you know, just to hear him muse, right? We're driving, you know, from Virginia down to North Carolina. And he looks at me at one point and he says, do you know how many times we could have driven the width of Israel in the period of time we've been in this car. Right. And I said, yeah. how many? He said, I don't know, eight, nine, ten. He said, we could have gone. It's like they're, it's like we, they're jet pilots. Yeah. I mean, it's like two, you know, 14 minutes and they're, they're out of fucking Israeli airspace. They got to turn around. Yeah, you know? I mean, Jerusalem to Tel Aviv is like 50-odd miles Yeah, from the western part of the West Bank, you know, you can see Ben Gurion Airport. I mean, wow. It's like, right. <laughs> it's like a 90-minute ride from Haifa to uh, Jerusalem. Because we went there. I don't know if you were on that bus, Will. And oh, yeah. right overlooking Jerusalem is the Elvis Presley rest stop. Absolutely. I couldn't believe it. A fucking 20-foot statue of Elvis Presley. In the, been, over I've been by it like 50 times. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> the um, and you know that um, at that PME that Zinni did combat concepts that night, which I would tell you is the greatest PME I've, I've ever been to. I, I certainly changed my life. You know, and, and and again, and this this exchange of letters is reminiscent of that to me, because those guys were not afraid to get it on in public. But anyway, mm-hmm. Zinni was Zinni's on the stage, right? sitting in front of me and I think so the tables are uh so as I'm sitting there in what was the dining facility at, at, at the base of school called? Oh something hall. A, yeah it was a, a name after Medal of Honor winner. Um not Maxim Hall but uh Haywood Hall? Haywood, Haywood Hall was the that was the No that no that was the uh, building, right? Yeah that was something anyway else. so so the, the tables are going cross or are going long ways, right? Towards the stage. 
Boyd is one table over and maybe a dozen people in front of me to, to my left. Way to the right uh, is the uh, Brigadier General Van Riper, and sitting right next to him is Bill Lind. Zinni's on stage doing his ev- evangelist thing, and he's funny as shit, and he's, he busts balls on everybody except John Boyd. He didn't touch uh-huh. Boyd. Boyd takes him on, and you can watch the PME if you go to the All Marine Radio uh, YouTube channel. It's on there, all three hours of it. And Boyd gets into Zinni about culminating points. And Boyd's, I think, question, kind of question statement was, they can be self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Because you don't know when you're going to culminate in a dynamic event. And so, and so you have these mate guys who had these incredible experiences, and they were big brain dudes all in the same room. And so it's it kind of us as toddlers, right, looking around like watching the tennis match, like, <laughs> boom, 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 right? And, but we grew up with that as an example, and then – um, we start this thing called the Marine Corps University Society. Um, that's the mucus. The mucus. <laughs> we used to call it the mucus <laughs> meeting, and 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 we would we would get together and we would let it rip on each other, and that's the way we grew up. And I would tell you that that is the intellectual basis of this right here. Um, what, what, the things that we learned. That's why that's why this exchange tickles me so much because it is reminiscent of 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 those things. So. Uh, I'll never forget, I asked you by General Zinni at one of those subsequent PMEs, we did like a war game of Somalia. And I and Herr Schwerd was supposed to be in charge of our little fact, remember Major Sward, and he put me in charge. He said, you're going to be Ali Mahdi, because that was what he was supposed to be. One of the faction leaders, you know. Okay, so, so hold on. So, so hold on. This is post-Somalia. Yeah. And, yeah, we're, is, and now we're replaying it as a as a, some kind of yeah, event? Yeah, it was actually Somalia part was still going on, I think. Okay. We were on our way out. So General Zinni was there. And right. uh, he goes, so I, what I did was I, you know, set up these meetings with fucking, uh, who is the big asshole they're always trying to kill? Um, um, Adid? Adid, yeah, right. And yeah. So, but, but basically what I did is I did a couple of them where I, I played straight. Then I did one where I assassinated everybody. Like, you know, like Sonny Corleone getting mowed down in The Godfather. And uh, he fucking went off on me. He's like, you would be, you would lose all credibility. He just chewed my ass. I was like, I'm looking at Major Sword. He bravely said nothing, of course. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so then the next time I talked to General Zinni, he's out there watching um, Live Fire Mech Attack. And, that, and a lot of shit happened then, too. And his aide was Gary Johnson. And he says to me, you're an asshole on that fucking uh, on that, uh, war game. You did a good job with this mech attack, man. And that's it. That's <laughs> the last time I talked to him. But yeah, he was. Uh, I'll tell you. Remember the one with him and General Christmas got into it about flax and helmets. Yep. You know. Yeah, but, uh, but you know, and again, first of all, they were great friends and colleagues, but yeah. they but they were not afraid to let it rip in public. And well, it's not only that, Mac. It's like, and Will was like the color commentator. He says, you know, <laughs> I I talked to this guy, Major, the guy who was the CO15. 15 came in after they took the other side of the river. They took the Citadel. It was vicious, you know? And the guys in 25, they acted like, hey, wait, the Battle of Way was over once, you know, we left, you know? But uh, yeah, they, uh, remember that guy, Thompson, Will? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was uh, he was a stud, man. He, as a matter of fact, he was in charge. The Marine Corps had this thing when I first came in called the Marine Corps Physical Fitness Academy, which was a bunch of dudes 
kind of like uh, George Bristol's guys. Instead of doing McMap, though, they just did all different types of PT, you know, different types of O courses and shit like that. They did away with it, but uh, it was really it was like, what are we going to do with these guys, you know? But uh, yeah, I remember Thompson. He he was very uh, he was a very impressive guy, you know. But uh, I remember those guys teeing off on each other. That's the point. I remember Dave was the escort for General Moore uh, from from uh, you know, the. Uh, yeah, Hal Moore, and also yeah, Joe Galloway came with him. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I do. And Dave, Dave has, he goes, yeah, it's General Moore. He's a good guy, but he's really a general. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dave probably learned more about fucking generals during that fucking eight hours or whatever than yeah, the whole time before, yeah. All right, let's talk about uh, thoughts on this, uh, on this exchange. So um, if you um, – if you go to this post um, and you go to the links, you'll see a link to uh, the initial letter that Bill Lind writes. Um, and, uh, and so that appears in the September Gazette. Uh, it's called Groundhog Day in the Marine Corps. And uh, so you'll read, I'm sorry, that appears in the August Gazette. Uh, so you can read that. And then um, subsequent to that in would it, would it be the October Gazette? Um, there's something I, I I don't know what group of people are Marinas, but um, somebody in a position of authority at the Gazette is Marinas. In in this version of it, talks about Bill Lind and and, and the um, and the letter that he writes, and the letter is uh, you know is is typical Bill Lind in that it, it's a uh, it's insulting um, to a, to the officer corps and a number of other people, and um, and that has very much been his uh, style throughout. And then uh, the October uh, letter is uh, written by uh, the Van Riper brothers, um, Lieutenant General Paul K. Van Riper, United States Marine Corps retired, and then Colonel James Van Riper, United States Marine Corps retired. Um, so they write a uh, a pretty um, a, pre- a pretty blunt rebuttal about Bill Lind and uh, not only his style but his substance. And then um, I want to say two days ago on the twenty fourth of October, um, Bill Lind published um, a view from Olympus, the Marine Corps again fire counterfire in which he rebuts um the van riper uh, letter to the editor in the marine corps gazette now woody was on with me yesterday and said that there's another salvo coming so stay tuned that this exchange is not over so so more to follow um but let's talk about the substance of uh you want to talk about thoughts on the initial uh bill lynn's initial uh letter and uh and why don't we start, uh, Will? Uh, you just you just leaned into your computer. You want to uh, you want to start? And we'll go from there. Yeah, you know it's 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 typical Bill Lind in that there is a lot of great stuff in here that he's absolutely right over. Um, the idea that the Marine Corps adopted maneuver warfare on paper, but not in practice. So that's not completely true. Um, but there's a lot of things that 
the the manual FMFM one war fighting says that we need to do that are integral to all of this that we never even approached like manpower being the biggest one and people are the key to this whole thing um there's some great criticism uh in this um about force design 2035 you know lynn puts forth the thesis that we're not going to fight a conventional war with china uh, they've got nuclear weapons. We've got nuclear weapons. Neither side is going to risk something getting out of control. So the Marine Corps is allowing itself or willingly going to sort of a non-mission. And it could um, adopt a real useful, helpful mission to the nation. Um, the problem with it, with it is that it's written by Bill Lind, and he just can't help himself. Um He's got to, he puts things in there that are insulting, but he also puts things in there that just probably aren't true. For example, um, the, he points to a second reason for the Corps' Groundhog Day problem. Most Marine officers now read little or nothing. During General Gray's commandancy, Reading and discussing serious books were common activities among not only officers, but NCOs and staff NCOs. Well, both of those lines are false. I got a feeling that there are Marine officers out there that read a little bit more than nothing. And I distinctly recall in the late 80s and early 90s, there were plenty of Marine officers um, that, that had not been in a library since they were in second grade. So... Those are the things that just just detract uh, and turn this into a more fun exchange in the Gazette, but are likely going to sidetrack it into, you know, vitriol and, and who can do the better Twitter, um, as opposed to the essence of his argument. Um, the past is irrelevant in a lot of ways. What are we doing now? What are we going forward? And how does that fit with anything that we're talking about here? Because I can't, I can't figure that out. So that's what I would say about it. Got it. Tim, thoughts on it? You know, um, Lynn has a tremendous intellect, and it was always fun to, to hang around him. But, but let me tell you about the first time I met Bill Lynn. I was a Second lieutenant out of Camp Porno, one nine. I was. I had read uh, an infantry magazine about this thing, this uh, this miles game you could play with smoke grenades and barricades and basically fire team on fire team type thing. And so I had scheduled a day to go out and 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 set this course up and see if it was worth the shit. And it really wasn't. It 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 really because it was miles gear. What we are trying to accomplish, which was fight the saw, the fire team guys fight the saw. It wasn't. It wasn't working. And we were. We were. I had moved. We were enlarging the thing, and we got too close to the road. And I noticed the smoke was blowing across the road, and then an official car stopped. And I'm like, "Oh shit, hey Sergeant Egan, are we allowed to have smoke grenades as close to the road?" He goes, "I don't know, sir. You're the officer. You tell me." But it was Bill Lynn who came out, and he. he I salute. How's it going? I salute the colonel that was with him. He asked me what I'm doing. I explained this game that we're trying to we're trying right now, and he called it 
what the hell do they call it? Uh, uh, laser tag footballer. He got all excited. And I, next thing you know, the uh, colonel calls me in like weeks later. And Lynn had written a letter to the commandant, mentioned me by name. And the colonel asked me, what the hell were you doing? I said, I was trying to do that stupid army thing. And it, it sucked. So the thing is about Bill is, so when he, when he, it was nice meeting him. I didn't know who the hell he was, but he gloms on to stuff that looks like it's pretty tricky. It looks like it might work, but it doesn't work. And I, I've always remembered that because I, he actually asked me at IOC, hey, how did that, uh, that, uh, you know, that fire team soccer game go? I said, we never did it again. It sucked. It was, it, it didn't work out at all. Not that he ever mentioned it again. And so, you know, with, 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 with Bill, he was always around the Marine Corps. He was good about getting people's names and writing notes and sending them up to the commandant, which was gratifying uh, and stuff like that. He always actively sought to have people confront him so he could go one on one with him in person, which is hard to do with him. But uh, and, and I do remember I, I do remember the gigantic emphasis on reading, although the reason we're to all four friends and the rest of our little tight crew, we were always readers. That was what attracted us. That's why we were always friends at, at first is we always had been readers. So I don't know how much of the credit goes to Lynn. That's certainly some of it. But the guy's always been off-putting, and he's never really known what he's talking about that much, which is why when March Up was going on and you guys were fighting Iraqis and I was back here moping, I was reading uh, uh, Olympus, and he was warning about the Iranians, you know, the, the, the 5th Panzer Brigade coming in doing a schwer punk on the army. I'm like, Dude, the Iranians, the Iranians cannot do motorized regiment on regiment warfare with us. What the hell are you talking about? But this is his level of understanding of things. It's all in the theoretical. I don't think that he ever had a, a good understanding of the human dimension of war. And I think that was always been his, his failing. Well, um, the discussion, though, is about fourth generation warfare, right, um, that, he get, that he gets into uh, and right. that, they get, that they get into. We'll come back to that. Uh, Jeff, uh, your thoughts on Bill Lynn's initial letter? Well, yeah, that was the disappointing part. You just mentioned about his letter. He really didn't really reference fourth generation warfare too much. I mean, he, he you know, he's the maneuver warfare thing. But I remember during the, you know, during the later years of uh, my time in Quantico as a captain, he was all over this new thing, which I think he got from Von Krevel. He had the highest regard for Von Krobel. He oftentimes would mention him. But the fourth generation warfare is really what we're facing, that type of thing. Maneuver warfare, I mean, you know, OAF-1, 20-day, 21-day, you know, uh, you know, force-on-force force thing where we kick the shit on them. And everybody learned the lesson, don't go toe-to-toe with the USA because you'll end up like the dumbass Saddam. Four days in 1991. You know, 20 days, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in in 2003. And but what he was talking was he didn't really get into the uh, real mistakes. I think we made, you know, what I mean, and uh, the uh, the ignoring like I think a lot of our, you know, some of his criticisms are uh, they're misplaced because he really didn't. He's not as clued in as he was back in the 90s, late 80s and 90s with us. The thing about Lind is. Some of his ideas were so perfect. I never forget. He said, um, the training areas in Camp Lejeune is where you should live. 
main side is where you should train. That yeah. is the future battlefield. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, we keep talking about this stuff, mm-hmm. but we never do it. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. It's so wild and and out there. And and you know, his discussion in in part of this letter is just such it's so exactly correct. Uh but he can't help himself. You know. you know, when you say he can't help himself, it, it reminds me of Grant Newsham, something he says to me all the time. He said, he says, you know, Mac, he, he just can't help himself. He's like a dog licking himself. <laughs> he's, like a, <laughs> he's like a dog licking himself, right? And what, Grant, I mean, I had to suppress a, a, an out loud chuckle. And he was, I was asking him about, the question Typically when you when you out loud it's not a chuckle it's a guffaw yeah a guffaw yeah a guffaw of derisive laughter so i had to suppress yeah. it but i asked him earlier this week um about the question that the president got asked about defending taiwan and the president said oh yes i will defend taiwan and um and then the white house says uh uh what he meant to say was and then grant's like can you imagine, right? Like General Mattis is opso, Clark Lathane, but but he doesn't mention Clark or anything like that. And he says, you know, the short guy with the baggy eyes, he didn't mean to say that. <laughs> and I heard that. I started, I thought, I can't, right? The paint would come off the walls. My analysis of Lynn's initial letter is this. The stiletto that he really wants to 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 wield is about the commandant's force design twenty thirty five, right? He uses right this whole this modern discussion of is is maneuver warfare still relevant as a uh, as a petard to um, since nobody knows uh-huh. what. Since nobody knows what that is, whatever right? that is, <laughs> whatever that is, <laughs> it's some, knows. it's something you, you would you would be hoisted on some type of shield or something. Anyway, but anyway, so he uses that as kind of the veil that he initially assaults, right, so that he can deliver his stiletto, which is his commentary about uh, his thoughts on Force Design twenty thirty five, and so you're right. I, and and again, his his snark has always been way more, um, but he he made us think, and in that way he contributed gasoline to the fire on many occasions. But we would sit down, and we would have discussions about initiative. So what does this all mean? And and there was this when we were at the basic school, there was this there was this initiative and impetus to do force on force completely unscripted it's the only way to learn right ah, maneuverous in the mist exactly and i would not participate in that i was like no i won't do it it's it's a waste of time we do all this training and if we don't force some events right and give as much latitude within those events then they'll never make contact 
right? And do you know what kind of ammunition turn-in that's going to be? It's going to be a four-day event, and I will not participate in a four-day ammunition turn-in that takes place over the course of a fucking weekend, okay? I will not do that. The Lance Corporal inside of me says no. So I, I had this thing I called the B team. It was me and Paul Kennedy and, and I don't know whoever else joined up with it, but we would refuse to, to sign up for the wars, and, but we would be doing R5. We loved R5, R11, all like the squad tactics things and stuff. We'd be out there. And we'd say, oh, we're B-team guys. We don't do maneuvers in the mist. We do B-team stuff. And then Lieutenant Colonel Grider chewed my ass for that. And um, But um, it was interesting because we would have uh, – so initiative. Lynn would talk about it like – yeah, and Zinni talks about it in that PME. Everybody has some. And then Zinni links it to Napoleon and deception. He says, you know, when Napoleon's at Austerlitz and, and he was going through the fog, what happens if one of those other little gomers, right, wanted to deceive somebody that he was actually in the fog? That kind of would not have gone well with Napoleon's plan. He said, so initiative like deception, everybody's got to have some. He said, I don't buy it like that. I don't buy it like that. And so then you have Zinni assaulting Lind uh, and that idea. And then you have us talking about it. Like, how did it work? Like, how would the Germans take over France? Is everybody just kind of doing their own thing along this broad sweeping axis? No, no. And so I go up to the – and so we, so we would wrestle with, okay, so how did they do it? And so I went up and I got the German troop leading manual from 1934 – at the, at the National Archives, I see it in a footnote, the, the reading Timmy's talking about, in a book called Wiedemeyer Reports. Al, mm -hmm. Alfred, is it, is it Alfred or Albert Wiedemeyer? He's, he's a German-speaking... I want to say Alfred. Um, yeah. He's the guy that came up with the number of divisions we need. Yeah, in the, in the victory plan, as a, major, yeah. as a major, right? Mm -hmm. Hilarious. Yeah. But well, anyway... next-door neighbor's designing the helmet. Yeah, the... the um, Wiedemeyer goes to the Kriegs Academy and he brings home their troop leading manual and it's his, in his papers at the, at the National Archives. So I go up there and I, you know, get my little library card and I said, could I see this box? And they said, sure. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, they're actually going to give me this shit, man. I'm like, this is in the document Holy of Holies of, of the United States. And they come out with this cart and this bin and they're like, here you go, sir. And I look at it. And I looked at her and I said, could I make a copy of this? And she said, sure, the copy machine's over there. I was so excited, right? And I'm copying this thing. So then I bring it home and I make copies for everybody. And I'm going through this thing. And it gets to the part of initiative. And, and it says this. I'll never forget it. It says, the commander who, who and I'll, I'll use my own language, who fritter away the higher commander's combat power by the poor use of initiative, right, and we'll, it's something like, we'll pay for it <laughs> with his ass. or I don't know exactly the phraseology, but there was no mistaking that. And so to me, it gave birth to this idea in my head that we then talked about, this idea of coordinated initiative. If it's important enough for me to deviate from the mission you've assigned me, my first responsibility is to let you know so that if I don't know that Cobras are already coming to deal with that section of tanks that's in a gap that I think that needs to be dealt with, you can tell me, Mac, there's Cobras en route. Stay where you're at, right? And so, and so that's the kind of 
I think, mature understanding that we develop by listening to guys like Zinni and, and debating each other and being intellectually curious about how it actually happened. Bill Lynn was telling us to go be maneuvers in the mist, and it was, it was ridiculous. And so, and so I think what, um, so we learned to, to, to listen to his criticism, take it on board, and then go down and drill into the footnotes of how did it work and what is valid about what he says, because there was some stuff that was valid, what he said. And, uh, but to me, the whole thing is smoke for his velvet dagger into the Commandant's Force Design 2035. And, and what he says is, right, that the Marine Corps risked becoming, um, right, an irrelevant force. And what's, what's the exact statement that he, phrase that he used? Um, at present, it does not. Um, nor does the Marine Corps intellectual collapse end with its failure to address, much less win, fourth-generation wars. It has failed on the strategic level as well, both in terms of its role in the nation's defense and in its strategy for political survival. The two are linked. The Marine Corps has survived as an institution because America could, could see the need for it. They could do so because the Marine Corps had a unique strategic role. At present, it does not. And its attempt to find such a role border on farce in a war with China, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> in pursuit yeah, of this strategy, like that's pretty accurate. Yeah. In pursuit of this strategy that needs only music by Sullivan to become a co comic opera, the yeah, court ga right? gave up substantial force structure in the naive assumption it would get back the money and thereby save and save thereby osd said thank you very much and took it all and so um that's to me the whole everything else is smokescreen for that little statement right there right? you know bill lynn's his own worst enemy because he deliberately like for instance he totally just you know did not care about the human factors in combat not at all so when we showed him the room of pain you know the leadership close combat exercise he was scornful Mm -hmm. you know he uh so him, so wait a minute are you saying you're lend like no i try not to do that because it's stupid to do that it destroys the whole argument yeah. you know he does it cold-bloodedly you know that's his first thing he's gonna do he's gonna there insult the whole fucking you know the whole bunch some of the stuff said the guy says is real smart but uh you know he, he ruins it with his manner i think but he's always done that Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make this a discussion about him personally. Although I, that, that's always a part of this. I, I, I want to talk about about the Van Riper uh, letter about fourth generation warfare. Uh, Will, your thoughts on that? Um, you know, he the the Van Rypers get into you know this discussion of the theory of the generations of warfare and, um, you know, they, they use that and, and they call out some historians who, who sort of disagree with that theory. And, um, I don't know. It's like you're wrestling with a pig at that point. Um, you know, maybe that's what they talk about at command of staff and AWS. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't recall talking about it in that way. And, and, and I also think it detracts from the idea of what is maneuver warfare. 
Maneuver warfare is not a flanking attack, right? It's a, it's a philosophy and a theory that can apply in every situation. Um, and so I don't, you know, I got lost in the middle of, of the point. They, they seem to be just trying to discredit his idea because they say he's a one trick pony, you know, everything is fourth generation warfare kind of a thing. Um, as opposed to going to the essence of wh where did we succeed and where did we fail? And we failed significantly in the adoption of maneuver warfare as a theory for the organization. Uh, we absolutely did. We're still rigidly hierarchical. Um, the the essence of the Marine Corps has always been people, and we're throwing that away. We we never shifted a manpower management system that came from a you know 1970s where we could rely on the draft, not drafting people into the Marine Corps, but the draft generating forces for us into a much more modern um, you know, human resources has a bad connotation. But the Marine Corps never really looked at its people in a thoughtful way. Um, and it's right there in the doctrine. And I think they could have done a better job criticizing or 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 ignoring the stupidity of Bill Lynn, but getting the good parts out of him and attempting to reinforce uh, and generate a discussion on that level. Um, and I don't, I just don't think that they did uh, with their response. Got it. I mean, their response, um, they talk about him personally, you know, being a one trick pony and uh and him trying to sell this concept of fourth generation warfare that has never taken hold and they kind of get into him for that um and then then they go into a discussion about fourth generation warfare the different people that have addressed it and then they kind of come then they circle back to him personally again and and kind of end the article like that um, um and that is called um the one that appears in October is called Bill Lind, Enough is Enough, written by yeah, I, General and Colonel Van Riper. Yeah, I, I, and, and I got to tell you, what, there, there's one paragraph in here that really bothered me that's beneath them. Based on what we've learned in over 105 years of combined service in uniform and subsequently as PME instructors, okay, I, you know, I don't need to read your resume. Then he says his thoughts have no worth remotely comparable to what today's Marines garner from service under fire or through professional education and training. And I think that's absolute crap. In 20 years of warfare, what are the three lessons learned for the Marine Corps? The Marine Corps doesn't know. It doesn't know. And service under fire, 
So does that mean the guy working in the chow hall at Blue Diamond? What does that mean? It's it's stupid. Um, and we should have a little bit of humility in that professional military education has always been ongoing in the Marine Corps throughout its history, but I think it really got ramped up late 80s, early 90s. And while tactically we did a lot of great things, the country, you know, militarily is not in a better place, even though we've had all of this great PME and training. And so, again, we should, we should, we should think that Bill Lind wants the Marine Corps to be better, even though he's a fucking jackass in the way he does it, and channel that as opposed to standing on our laurels. And I'm looking around at what our laurels are. There isn't very many, not even that, And that, that's the point. You know, Jeff, Jeff describes what the lesson learned should have been for the last 20 years. You know, take away the march up and take away the punitive campaign. What is the lesson learned for the last 20 years? Well, the service never learned it. Right? And, and I don't know how many times I heard, you know, we've got to build capable uh, coalition partners. Yeah. And we never did it. Yeah. They just, we never, we failed. And I have to tell you, I remember report, we do this thing called the tray report, basically in Iraq and Afghanistan is a training and readiness uh, assessment of whoever it is you're, you know, trying to develop. And, and we always said the big problem is these guys are getting robbed of their pay from up above. And the stuff that's supposed to come down here, it's getting cut in half. It's supposed to receive so much gasoline, only half it's coming. You got a corruption problem in the top. And meanwhile, what are they doing? They're inviting like the CG of the fucking, uh, you know, of uh, the 215th Corps to, to visit America. And they're kissing his ass. He's a fucking crook. And, and beyond and, that, maneuver warfare applies. Even in building coalition forces, yeah, that yeah. is the main effort. It's ludicrous you know, to build that, in. If we, yeah, if we've identified the enemy's critical vulnerability, um, if the surface is this corruption, how are we finding the gap? Um, how are we concentrating our effort? All those are maneuver warfare. You know, Will. Terms Will you apply. said it before. You said it before in other in other subjects. Someone's got to be an asshole. Someone's got to say you are a crook. You're going to jail, you know, or you're fired. Bring this back to the you discussion, know. okay, Timmy? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> we're we're worrying about the stuff that I think is not relevant. You know, when we when we get into arguments about fourth generation warfare and and really it comes down to you know General Van Riper and his brother, both great fucking guys. Proven in combat, both of them, you know, resent a guy like Bill Lynn, a dilettante. And, you know, that's what I think that their article was pretty much. And I'm with them, you know, as far as that goes. Well, then you disagree with Will because Will said, Will just took the Van Rypers to task for throwing, you know, Lind out with the bathwater. Well, he thought it could have been done better. He said it was yeah, stupid. He said it was stupid. Quote, it's stupid. I don't know. Did I say stupid? You maybe? did. I, they're better than that. 
and they should be able to get at a higher level and take the things where Lind is on and just go with that and not respond. Again, Bill Lind loves wrestling with pigs. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what he That's what is. He loves and, and, uh, no, again, they, they've his, made him more is, relevant, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, they should just ignore him. Right. His criticism, though, of the force design, I, I mean, I find it very apt. Um, well, I mean, that's one one point of agreement. But uh, again, though, but but that's where they should be with him. It's demeaning to them to get into this personal thing and yeah, to argue about the whole fourth. I don't know. To me. If I can make the one observation, which is none of this, none of this is relevant to us, really, because you can talk about fourth generation warfare all you want to. I saw you, uh, Mike, you and Dave down there in Dwyer, you had squads out sitting everywhere. I mean, just just squads of Marines on their own doing what I think is, is is pretty close to fourth generation warfare if you want to, but it didn't matter because you had a border with Pakistan in which the Taliban could go and refit and rest and recuperate with no, no dramas. You had an ally that were thieves and you couldn't do anything. We couldn't do anything about that. So I love that we're talking about these theoretical constructs, but I'm afraid the only guys who ever ever even wrestled with anything like this level of thought were generals marshall admiral king i mean those days are gone the, 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 now, nowadays i'm i'm i reject fundamentally the lynn's argument about our 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 lack of intellectual curiosity about the war and the van riper brothers very effectively reinstate that yeah we've we've been doing a lot of this in the meantime and 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 where the hell were you, Bill Lynn? Which which like Will was saying, that's kind of distracts from your argument. But but really, in the in the big picture scheme, what does it matter? You could have the perfect neo combat, uh, uh, non permissive neo out of Kabul. But if the president's telling you throw uh, throw unvetted people on all those empty seats, first off, the question is to be why the hell is the president talking to me here in Kabul? And the second would be this is the kind of bullshit the military's got to deal with that our leaders cannot effectively shield us from. And, and thus, you're, you're, you could talk about maneuver warfare and initiative and swear punks and the enemy's center of gravity. Fuck you. They're across the border in Pakistan laughing at you. And we allowed that to happen. So unfortunately, it's more than just a military, military problem about our ineffective use of projecting force to achieve our goals. That's a national problem. That's a problem that rests at the national level of command and not one person ever in my lifetime ever has ever addressed, how do you fix that? How do you fix it at the national level? Uh, I remember doing all these MU exercises with State Department actors, and these were ambassadors and stuff that were supposed to come out and play a role. But what they did is they dined and had drinks and watched the, uh, the live fire hostage rescue, and then they went home. They never participated in shit. They didn't take any of it seriously. That's a bigger problem than whether we're schwer punking or third generation or fourth generation. It 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 kind of makes this whole argument irrelevant when you start looking at it at the strategic level, uh, which is where this this argument lies. 
But again, I think that they would both, uh, it's interesting. I, I, you know, that'd be an interesting exercise. Um, well, since you mentioned it, 20 years of war, what, what are the three lessons that we learned? What would those be? I wrote it down. We'll do it. I think, I think Hackworth probably has it in his book. It's right? the same ones he learned. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Well, and my, my point of the whole thing, though, is that no one seems to be curious about it. <clears throat> no one was curious about it my last tour in the Pentagon when I asked that a lot. And we were too busy. We're not even remotely curious. Is individual I, replacement or unit replacement better? We did. Well, we, we took a lesson from Vietnam. Well, you're right about we're going to do unit thing. replacement, and then we just assume that's correct. But we never even look at those things. We yeah, never looked correct. at. We we in our in our FMFM one or MCDP one. Now we talk about uh, relationships with units. We never did that over there. We don't know how long a combat tour should be. We and, and that's and now we, you're talking. Those are what are service lessons. We are not intellectually curious and, about and those that, things. And here's my number one. My, my but number beyond one. that, General Van Riper, Colonel Van Riper, say we are. We've got all this experience under fire, all this PME, and all this training. But fundamentally. What would we do different if we had to go to Iraq and Afghanistan now? We wouldn't do anything different because we've not learned anything. So well, and, and well, just yeah, b- before Timmy, fucking freak. He's a freak, but he's got ideas that we should be big enough and humble enough to look at. And it disappoints me in their letter that they just, you know, they write him off and. And what's going to come out in the Gazette is, you know, Bill Lynn's a cartoon character. So it's unfortunate. The um, He is a cartoon character. I mean, he may be all the stuff you say, but he is an absurd dude, man. And I don't... Let me just say this. I, and again, I don't want to make Bill Lynn the subject of this because that's not what we're talking about. I, I would almost extrapolate what Will said and ask this question. Has Force Design 2030, 2035, is it? Um, has it undergone the thrashing that maneuver warfare um, went through um, in, in, in and around circa 1989, 90, 91, 92, when General Gray was commandant? Uh, has it gone through anything close to that? And so is the intellectual environment of the of the Marine Corps, is it tolerant of dissent? Or are you expected to get on board? And to me, that's a big, that's a big fucking deal, man. Whether you can, where you can say, I, I vehemently disagree with this, or is that not tolerated anymore? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's, what, what was General Van Riper's reputation as Colonel Van Riper? He was the psychopath of Okinawa, right? Right. But before as as the as the commanding general or the president of Marine Corps University, um, he oversaw the petri dish that required people to argue and have these things. And so, you know, if you think about it, the the late eighties. If you were to to really observe 
from not real close, you wouldn't think that the Marine Corps would be a place that you could have those sort of thoughtful discussions and disagreements. Um, oh, that's a good point. And, but it was. Right. And, and I would say the thing about the, the force design is that, you know, if, if you wanted to try and figure out what maneuver warfare was in those days and what it meant, you could do it. You could understand the arguments in the Gazette. You could understand the arguments at the basic school at, uh, at amphibious warfare school. When I went through it, um, the commandant was involved. I don't, I don't understand the underpinnings of the new force design. I see the, the one liner, you know, China, but in Bill Lynn's letter, I saw more intellectual thought about what the other side of this thing could be than I've seen anywhere else. So my answer to your question, Mac, is it would be hard for me to believe that this force design has been through the sort of intellectual meat grinder that, that, that the maneuver warfare went through that ended up in the publication of FMFM1. Um, and as a result, you know, it seems to me to be a budget drill right now. And it, right. Uh, that's, that means a famous, a famous man said it one time, we're doomed. You misspoke there. A not-so-famous man said that and continues to say, um, uh, continue to say it. So Are you to me, calling me a one-trick pony? <laughs> no, I'm no, no Bill Lynn. <laughs> no, no, no. You have, you have many more than one tricks, all right? Uh, many more than one trick. Um, uh, I'm just saying your, your tricks are not so famous, but that's okay because we love you. To me, that's, I would say that's the great concern is that is the impression um, substantial among thinkers of the Marine Corps that you can't say it out loud. You can't, you can't do it in public. I mean, look, we've all read about, you know, the, the opposition of the retired general officer community. And they do that in silence for the most part, right? Um, for their own reasons. And uh, we don't air, we don't, certainly don't air that out in public, right? Um, but I think we all, we all know how that community feels about force design 2035, yet it's not, it's, it's verboten to discuss it publicly. Um, and so to me, that's the, when you, when you talk about this discussion and, and as we hearken back to, you know, participating and watching the debate, uh, occur in front of us by these guys, um, to me, that's the thing that 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 Lind gets towards. That I I wish the Van Rypers would have seized on more. Um, uh, is that is this discussion of, you know, I you know I, the experience I've had in being the moderator of All Marine Radio, I've had people offer, call me up and offer to explain it better to me, right, so that I could understand it. Right. 
well, do you want to come on the show and talk? Well, no, not, no, I couldn't do that. But I mean, I'll explain it to you so you can understand it, so you can explain it to everybody. I said, I'd say, sorry, I, I don't do that, you know. And um, so I think that's to me that's concerning that we, there isn't this open um, knockdown dragout that we'll have in public. And but at the end of the day, we all understand the commandant. You know, he's when there's a salute point, but it it. It shouldn't preclude us for for going bare knuckles over the ideas and with the same intellectual rigor that we did with maneuver warfare. Um, all right, final thoughts about this whole kerfuffle, Will? Um, yeah, we'll we'll see uh, we'll see what the Van Vi- Van Ripers uh, respond with in uh, you know Bill Lynn closed his last letter with a with a nice little quote about, you know, the irony of uh, a critic of fourth generation warfare being the, you know, COCOM down in CENTCOM when we lost the last, and I think his quote was something like, the irony could not be more delicious or something. <laughs> yeah. He's got Ironies it. are seldom that delicious. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so we'll see if the Van Riper. Let me tell you, that's a great that. line. That is a great line though, right? It is. <laughs> But he's he's tweaking. He's tweaking them. That's what he's doing. And I think that, you know, we'll see. I No, I would hope. I I read past the first two lines when they respond. Got it. Whoa. Whoa. The, um, Timmy, how about you? Last thought. I, I think the letter from the Van Ripers is exactly what Bill Lynn was trying to do. He loves this kind of shit. And and I've got to get and, and I'm just reflecting back on the fact that as when we were in that transformation of maneuver warfare, there were people getting fist fights over this shit. That's how emotional people got about their various positions. Yeah, but you and have to had, but you have to footnote that by saying that alcohol we did have a club system. Alcohol was involved in most of those fist fights. They were not sober fist fights. Yeah, no, they were not sober fist fights. No, it was, there was always yes, it's always the evil, and, and, the evil drink involved <laughs> with us damn Marines, as Bill Lynn would say. But 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 it's clear that there hasn't been that level of 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 circum uh, that level of debate on this new force design. N- nobody seems to understand it. It's 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 very perplexing, and it doesn't speak well to our core because. When we were vigorously debating stuff, I don't think we're the first generation Marine officers to vigorously debate stuff, you know? And people always had this impression the Marine Corps is, well, you guys are the most square way. You're the most disciplined. Yes and yes. Well, you guys follow every order blindly. No, fuck no. No, we're not like that at all. We're a little bit uh, surly sometimes if you don't give us proper direction. But yeah, we're disciplined. We're effective. But we're not uh, a ro- robots. We're not, you, you know, we're we're a bunch of creative and and, and lovable individuals down in our deep. Well, parts. no, I mean we're very proud of that creativity, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So right, I don't like a- av- aviation, right? Um, mm-hmm. Ordnance from the sky, pioneered by the Marine Corps. Uh, amphibious warfare, pioneered by by the Marine Corps. All you know, out of the box kind of things. So there's a great history in the Marine Corps of things uh, out of the box. I'm proud of it. Yeah. And and we were proud to host Bill Lynn, who would come in and, and, and try to throw our, our crap out in the streets. I, I enjoyed those kind of things. I felt more secure in the organization where you could see your seniors disagreeing like that in public 
And no, at the end of the night, they wasn't they weren't taking it personal. They didn't drink as much as we did, probably. That's why. But now nah, it's no, uh, they, it's they a drank situation. they drank more. <laughs> it may well have been the case, but it's a, it's distressing to see where we are now. Now, now if you're going to get thrown out of the Marine Corps if you don't take a a, a shot against a virus that 99.3 percent chance of surviving anyway. I mean, it's shit like this that doesn't bode well for, for us as a, as a, as a, for the core or the nation. Quite frankly, it's just disturbing as hell. Jeffrey. Well, first of all, those guys who got in those drunken fistfights learn more from those fistfights <laughs> than they would for reading all the books of Von Kreveld and Bill Lynn combined. Because those guys don't have anything to do with us. And one thing about being in our little group there, I always read a lot. And I always, because for me, the big mystery was infantry combat at the platoon and squad level. And that's what we mainly taught at IOC. And so to get reference for that, we read history. And I never, I, I thought the whole maneuver warfare aspect of our discussions was just stupid, a lot of blather, a lot of crap. Like one of the first things those guys loved to do, and Bill Lynn's one of them, was shit on the guys in Vietnam. But let me tell you something. Those guys in Vietnam did a good job, a good job on the company and platoon level. And we know who they are because we looked them up and stuff. The guys who really mattered that I thought to us and made us better instructors were guys like John Ripley, Ray Smith, fucking, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, John Boyd, guys like that who came fucking John Boyd. Who cares, man? Oh, come on, dude. That's a high status. That's a high status one. That's That's high status. That's a high status name drop. I started, I didn't get into real combat until I was almost 40 years old. And, uh, and then, and then, I guess it's a blessing or a curse, but I saw shit that I should have seen when I was a lieutenant and a captain or when I was a lieutenant and a sergeant when I was a fucking lieutenant colonel. And I have to tell you, uh, I thought all that bullshit that these guys argue about, stupid arguments about maneuver warfare, we never needed that bullshit. It's all shit. The best stuff we did was that room of pain. And those ass-busting operations we made those guys go on, where they had to fucking survive in the in the in that fucking shitty Quantico climate, and we made the force on forces hard, and we didn't let them get, do gorillas in the mist and shit like that, and uh, and so and I think we turned out a good product. I think we did. I think the guys who trained us turned out a pretty good product when we went through, even though it was different, and uh, because the main thing was close with and destroy. That's how you win. I don't give a shit if you're in a firefight with a, you know, it's a fire team against two dildos hiding under a porch or whether you're talking about a mechanized attack, you know, that's what it does. And I think, you know, I don't, if I ever don't ever hear the word maneuver warfare again, it'll be too soon. The, um, Amen. <laughs> my final thought is that the, um, that Bill Lynn closes again, uh, to me, um, the Van Rypers, and this is odd because they know him, right? Um, so, in terms of servicing targets, in his in his in his second piece, his rebuttal to them, right? He spends the first page kind of getting into the Van Rypers and rebutting them, but that's not his intention. Okay. Then in the second page, he writes three lengthy bulletized uh, paragraphs about about 
force design 2035 he comes so he comes back to that so to me the tete-a-tete with the van riper brothers uh general lieutenant general and colonel is 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 simply smoke for uh, uh, again what he wants to ultimately get at which is the marine corps force design 2035 um again i would I think that uh, the question that has to be posed is the one that, that I asked earlier, and that is, you know, can you um, can you dissent? Is that okay? Right? Can you have these hard discussions? And you know, I, you know, to me, will you know what are the lessons that we've learned in twenty years of war? That's to me that would be fascinating. What's lesson number one? Number two? Number three? You know? And so anyway. Uh, so, so Bill Lind is using this, this back and forth, you know, to continue to substantiate, um, his low opinion of force design 2035. And so anyway, um, so it goes, we'll see what they respond with. What are you reading, William? I am reading a book called The New Map by Daniel Jurgen. Subtitle: Energy, Climate, and a Clash of Nations. So this guy Jurgen has written three or four books over the last probably twenty odd years, and a lot of them focus on energy, oil, etc. And this book is very up to date. I don't know how when it came out in the last few months, um, but he sort of looks at the perspective of U.S., Russia, Middle East, China, and how. Uh, energy fits into that. He talks a lot about natural gas and what's going on with natural gas in the last 20 years uh, and how it really shapes geopolitical uh, interaction. And uh, and I like, I it's one of the things that I sort of have paid attention to, um, but I got to say I've, I've learned a lot, particularly about um, the impact that uh, – you know, shale gas has had to the U.S. geopolitical position and unfortunately how we're sort of throwing it away. Um, <laughs> a really interesting book. And that guy's a very good writer. Uh, I couldn't tell you what his other books were. I read them some time ago. I got them around here somewhere. But The New Map, Daniel Jurgen, I-E-R-G-I-N. Very good book. Timmy, what are you reading? Well, I I, uh, I pounded through the cornfield, and, and like I said last week, that uh, we did not do Antietam justice, Jeff and I, back when we were doing staff rides there. And I picked up The Dying Citizen. That's Victor Davis Hansen's new book. And I got to be honest with you, it's it's depressing. I, 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 I normally do a lot of reading in the evening. I spend almost all my evenings reading. And I'm finding myself just setting it down because it's depressing. It's good. It's, it's, it's an accurate diagnosis of the malaise afflicting our country today and the reasons behind it, as well as a very stirring declaration of the differences between a citizen and a resident. And the more I read it, the more damn depressed I get. So how, I don't, dep- I, I, how, how depressing, I mean, is it, is it more or less depressing than dereliction of duty? That was a pretty yes. depressing book. Yes, yes. It's more yes, depressing. Was, I, it's more depressing to me. H.R. McMaster. Oh, yeah, H.R. McMaster. I'm familiar with that book, too. But because this one's not talking about the military, it's talking about our country. 
And the fact that citizenship as a concept seems to be uh, on the wane. And it's it's I I'm I seriously have to put it down because I just I get I get I, I get angry reading the thing. So so you, you get, maybe who knows why you get more angry than sad. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get like pissed angry as if I can do something. Do you get, do you get emotional? Because we've learned in the last couple of years. That <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not like that. No, no, no. <laughs> you it's can get emotional. It gets me emotional. You know, uh, puppies and kittens and stuff for some reason. <laughs> who knows why? But uh, yeah, the dying citizen, it's a great, it's a, it's a great book explaining our, uh, where we are at the present times in relationship to, the citizen and the country, and it's just depressing as shit. Sorry, <laughs> but you would recommend it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> particularly if you're, if, if particularly if you're a, a positive, optimistic person, it'd be excellent for you. Yeah, for me, I'm finishing it, but god damn it, it's just a, so depressing. Uh-huh. All right, Jeffrey, what are you reading? I'm reading that book Timmy recommended about the cornfield, and it's very good. I just started it. And oh. uh, it's very good. And it's going to eat up some time. I, bro. however, I'm going to avoid flagellating myself over uh, over not teaching the the true detail of uh, the cornfield because you know I didn't know it. But I mean, so Timmy, are they going to? My question for you is: Is he going to write another one called "The Sunken Road" and another no, one called no. "Burnside no, no. Bridge"? No, no, no. I'll commit suicide then. The thesis is the the failure to take capitalize on the gains in the cornfield cost us cost the end of the civil war to be, you know, prolonged by two years. That's his right. thesis. It all should have ended in the cornfield. What, what, um, how, how many, that. how many pages is the book? Oh, it's, it's a thick one, man. About five, 600. I, I got it on my Kindle. Let me see. Yeah. Yeah. If you, ta- if you tackle Coddington's Gettysburg. Oh, that's a good. Oh, book. no, no. That it's not that. Book. It's not that long. No. Yeah. That, that is, is interesting, though, too, at the same time, Coddington's, you know? Oh, no. It's fantastic. But it's like, no, it's, it's like 1,300 pages or some but shit. And like, four, Antietam, and like 400 of the pages are footnotes. But, you know, there's another book yeah. about Antietam by Sears. Uh huh. And it was like so detailed, it sucked. I mean, I don't know if you remember that book. It was, uh, no, no, I remember the book. Yeah, remember. We actually, we we would claim to have read it for our for our class, but I never went <laughs> through that thing either. I read it. it. Landscape turned red. Yeah, landscape, landscape turned, turned red. red. Yeah. yeah, that's that's like when you go to Gettysburg, somebody asking you, like, "Well, have you read Killer Angels?" You know, <laughs> right. It's like, what'd you say? <laughs> yes, yeah, Killer Angels. It's a book about the Civil War. Yeah, hold hold that thought, bro. I'll be right back. Coddington's book was so good. My uh, my in-laws lived up about halfway between Frederick and Baltimore. And Whoa. so we used to go there a lot on the weekends. And I brought that book with me. And I would just drive around on some of those back roads. And the number of those historical markers you could find. No kidding. Through all those back roads. No yeah. shit. You know, northern Maryland that had to do with the campaign before and after. It was really something. Um, yeah, Coddington's book. Uh, Coddington's book. It's just called Gettysburg, and it's, it's a, called it's, the Gettysburg Campaign. It's it's yeah. it's it's a it's a thick blue book, and it's, it's hundred pages plus four hundred pages. <laughs> it's a it's a thick, but but I will tell you. I mean, it it covers the whole, um, you know, the whole campaign, and if you want, and and again, and then you begin to. I actually bought the official records of the Civil War, the three volumes that deal with the Gettysburg campaign because of Coddington. 
right? And he's, you know, and you're reading Buford's daily reports, you know? Yeah. And they're, yeah. It's, they're fantastic because, I mean, we were a nation of letters, right? We wrote. And, and so, you know, J.N.O. Buford, you know. Yeah, I remember uh, there's a guy at the base school, Major John Buford. Yeah, I just he talked to just him. Just like, you see the pictures of the General Bu Buford from Gettysburg. They look alike, man. Remember no, they're just, I think, I think they're direct descendants. Yeah, because yeah, you know, John he was, was the XO of one eight when I was uh, when I was yeah. the three. Yeah, they're direct they descendants. Four grades. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, uh, do you, do you remember? Uh, well, you guys know Eric Mellinger. Eric was, you know, for people who are listening, he's an instructor with us at IOC. He took his guys to Ball's Bluff. There's a book written called Ball's Bluff about the first battle, really, of the Civil War up there by on the Potomac River, and the. It was written by a guy named Byron Farwell, and, and we some of the books we talked about, he wrote a bunch of books about the British Army during the Victorian age, Queen Victoria's Little Wars and eminent Victorian soldiers. And But he wrote this, he wrote a very good book about Stonewall Jackson, but he wrote Ball's Bluff, so Mel goes up there, and he finds that Byron Farwell lives up there. Like, when he went and did the research for it, he fell in love with that area of the Potomac. And he and the uh, you know he he wrote the book, but then he he lived it there. So Mel and his mentees, you know his his lieutenants, they got wined and dined by the guy, or at least he bought them booze. And uh, yeah, Byron Farwell, remember the Balls Bluff where the Lincoln was out there in his little that little presidential riverboat, and all these dead bodies started floating down the river from uh, from Balls Bluff. And uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting stuff. Again, an IOC guy who goes the extra mile and. Uh, you know, goes the extra mile. Yeah. Balls Bluff was a 20-minute drive from Quantico. We're driving well, I mean, 24 hours, man. Well, like, that was bullshit is, what Mel did. Yeah, it was chicken. Yeah, it was like chicken shit. Lazy. Lazy man. <laughs> lazy. Mellinger. Uh, lazy. No, good fucking dude. No, no it's, dude. it's hey, just because you're lazy doesn't mean you're a bad guy. But I know why he went to Balls Bluff. It was 20 minutes away. He yeah, he's like, I'm not going to Gettysburg. It's like three and a half hours. What the hell? And Tatum, <laughs> yeah, he and Tatum three. Went, yeah, Tatum was a couple, couple. It was three hours. Yeah. Yeah. All right, boys. Thank you very much for your time tonight and uh, your participation. Sure. You bet. That'll do it on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. Thanks for listening and making us part of your listening day. And uh, if you have a chance to help somebody, don't be afraid to do that. If I can help you help somebody, you know the drill. 
All the contact information on the website comes to me. Don't hesitate. On that note, have a great Thursday. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio, and I am out.